but go ahead and get in your Bibles to Ezra chapter number three. Uh, this morning, as we continue through the Bible, we, we come to the story of Ezra. And historically, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the, the Hebrew Bible, they're one book. It's not Ezra then Nehemiah, it's Ezra and Nehemiah. And the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, they cover a span of about 120 years, and they focus on three men, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, duh. Uh, but Ezra doesn't show up actually in the book of Ezra until right around chapter number six. So the first half of the book, Ezra's not even alive, and the second part of the book, he, he is. And so what the story shows is it, it is talking about the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. Uh, the first group of Jews are released from captivity in Babylon, and they go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. That's under Zerubbabel. Then the second uh, group goes back about 90 years later, they returned to Jerusalem to reestablish the work of the temple, the, the sacrifices and the priesthood, and reestablish kind of the religious activities of the temple. And then about 60 years after that, Nehemiah returns to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so it's three different migrations back home for three different purposes uh, during three different times. But this morning, we're going to look at the first return under Zerubbabel. So we're looking at Ezra, but we're not talking about Ezra. We're talking about Zerubbabel. And I know that Ezra is back in your Bible. Again, that's why going through the Bible uh, kind of story by story and chronologically can get a little confusing because last week we were in Daniel and now we're back in Ezra. And so we turned back in our Bible. So it looks like we're going back in time, but we're not. It's, 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 under, it's at the same time of Daniel chapter number six. If you, if you read all of Daniel chapter six, of course, Daniel in Daniel chapter six with the lion's den, he was under King Darius, but it ends that chapter says that he had prominence with Darius and King Cyrus of Persia. He was the next king to take over after Darius. And Cyrus is the king that allows the Israelites and the, the under Zerubbabel to return back to Jerusalem to reestablish the temple. And so at this time, you know, Israel, they had been invaded by Babylon twice. Babylon came in under Nebuchadnezzar. They destroyed the temple. They took away all the, the, uh, the gold pieces of, that they used to sacrifice, the golden vases and the lavers, and they took away all the, the tools of worship from the temple, and they took it back to Babylon. And in that first invasion, they took all the royalty from Jerusalem. That's why Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken, because they were of the royal line of David. And so he comes and he takes all the royalty with him, all the, the princes and all the, the kind of elite, the wealthy, the leaders of the nation. He takes them all back to Babylon as slaves. And then about 20 years later, he comes back to Jerusalem, invades it again. And now he takes every able-bodied person, uh, anyone who is, is old enough and strong enough to work or to handle a tool, or they will be soon, he takes them all. So all the children, all the young adults, he just leaves really the crippled and the elderly back in Jerusalem to pick up the pieces and move on, and they can't. So they've been in it, they've been in captivity now 
for 70 years. For 70 years, Jerusalem has been laid in ruins. There's been no attempt to rebuild anything. There's been no attempt to rebuild the temple. There's been no attempt to rebuild the wall. There's been no attempt to rebuild any homes because the remnant that is there, there's just there's so few of them and they're old and they're crippled and they can't do anything. So for 70 years, Jerusalem has been laid in waste. And it, it seems like God has turned his back on his people. He's allowed Babylon to come in and not just destroy the temple, but take all the, the items of worship with them. Take all the, the elite of Israel, the princes and the, the, the priests and all the, 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 the wealthy people and all the leaders. He's allowed, but then he's allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come back and destroy it even more and take away any hope Israel had of rebuilding. Because even if he takes the, the princes and the, the wealthy elite there, the people who are left, they're still able-bodied, everyday guys. They could have rebuilt the, the wall. They could have reestablished some form of government. But then he allows Nebuchadnezzar to come back and take away all the hope of Israel. And so it seems like God has kind of turned his back on Israel. But then he, he raises up a Persian king over Babylon named Cyrus. And again, Cyrus, Daniel served under Cyrus, kind of the, the end of his life, Daniel served under Cyrus. And God lays it on Cyrus's heart to allow the Jews to go home and rebuild the temple. And this is key because this is a direct answer to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, before Babylon came in, he warned about the invasion. He warned about Babylon coming in to destroy them. And he said, you will be in captivity for 70 years. And he actually named the king who would let them come home. So it's been 70 years. Cyrus has come up to take power and he is allowing some of the Jews to return home. Not all of them, because as God told Daniel, because of Israel's rebellion and continued idolatry, he's not going to let them all return home after 70 years, just some of them. The rest of them will have to wait another 630 years to go home. So it's a, about 50,000 Jews are allowed to return home to Jerusalem. It's mainly uh, the priests and the tribe of Judah. It's mainly the, the lead tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah who are able to go back home. And it's about 50,000. And I know 50,000 sounds like a lot. But when several million were taken, 50,000 is just a, a fraction. And so they're allowed to return back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple of God. And they start off from Babylon and they walk for four months to get home. After four months of walking across the wilderness, they finally return back to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to put yourself in their position for a minute. Many of these people were in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. They were younger, obviously, but they were, they were from Jerusalem. They were living there. They saw Jerusalem in its glory. They saw the temple. They knew what it was like. 
And they've been gone for 70 years. And now they finally get to go home. And after a four-month journey, they return home to their hometown, to Jerusalem, to where the temple is. And it's just, it's in rubble. It's ruined. There's been no progress. The temple is still completely destroyed. The walls are still completely destroyed. The city's basically abandoned. But they're excited to get home. They're excited to come back and start something and reestablish something and get something going. And let's see some action and some progress here. So they, they walk for four months. They're excited to get home. They get to this, this destroyed city ready to, to get busy and doing something. And you know what they do? Nothing. For three months, they do nothing. They just sit and kind of look at the destruction and kind of look at what's going on. They're surrounded by the destruction of Jerusalem and they just stand around and look at it. But they're not really not doing nothing. I mean, they are doing something. It just doesn't look like they're doing anything. The Bible says they are meditating on the goodness of God. They are remembering the mercies of God. I want you to look at Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse number 1. And when the seventh month was come, now the seventh month to us is October, but it's the holiest month in the, uh, the Hebrew calendar. When the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetial, and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon its, his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. So they get back to Jerusalem after leaving four months. They've been gone. They took four months to get there. They get to Jerusalem. They sit around for three months, not doing anything. And, you know, I know, well, they were meditating on the word of God, but you can, you can meditate on the word of God while you're sweeping, right? Am I wrong about that? You can think about God while you're picking up some rocks, but they don't do anything. They don't remove any rubble. They don't start to relay a foundation. They don't rebuild their own houses. Nothing. They sit around for three months. And then after three months, they worship God during the holiest month of the Jewish calendar. They, Cyrus, when he let them go back, he allowed them to take the vessels of worship that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. He allows them to take them back with them. So they, they set up the vessels of worship. They set up the altar still. In the rubble. I mean, they set up the altar and it's just destruction all around them. Rocks, everything's been stolen. Anything of value. It's like, you know, in, a, in an abandoned house. 
uh, especially in some, you know, in the city, uh, people will go in and strip the walls of copper wiring and copper piping and anything of value. That's what's happened now. There was no copper wiring or copper piping, but there was a lot of bronze around. And so they've, they've taken anything of value. People have, have taken rocks and stones from the temple to build their own houses or to pave their own driveways or do something. But they, they set up the temple, the, the altar of God. They put the, the worship items there in the middle of this destruction and this rubble and they worship God. They offer sacrifices to God. And they praise God for what he has done. The rest of chapter 3 it describes what they do after this time of rest and worship. But the first thing they do, before they remove any trash, before they clear out any rubble, before they put up any walls, the first thing they do is institute corporate worship and prayer to thank God for his goodness. Imagine for a minute, you, I know this is hard, hard to imagine. The, I'm, I'm going to make it hard to imagine. You are kidnapped and taken to a foreign place. You're a hostage uh, from ISIS or someone. You're a hostage for, for five or six or ten years you finally get released, you come home, and when you come home, your house is burned down to the ground. Nothing but ashes there. Is the first thing you're going to do is go to the middle of the ashes and say, thank you, God, for being so good. Most of us wouldn't do that. I don't think any of us would do that. First thing we're going to do is cry, maybe say some things that aren't very Christian-like, call our insurance company, I don't know, but we're not going to say, God... Thank you for allowing me to be captured, allowing me to be taken from home, allowing my home to be destroyed, and now allowing me to come home and look at the, thank you, God, for your goodness. But that's what they did. The most important thing to this group of Jews was worshiping God. As you are standing in the middle, uh, they're standing in the middle of the ref wreckage, the, thing, the first thing they do is say, the first thing we have to do before we do anything else, we have to worship Jehovah. With everything around them and rubble, they devote their energy and their time to worshiping God. Why was that so important to them? Because they had learned they were going to worship something. They were going to worship so our heart is designed to worship. We are either going to worship what we vow, what we think is good, what we think is necessary, what we think is valued, or we're going to worship God. That's why the first thing Israel does when they come home is they worship God. Because they knew if they didn't worship God first and establish that and make that, this is priority. The most important thing in our life is worshiping God. They knew if they didn't do that, they were going to worship idols because they'd done it their entire lives. They'd seen it throughout the history of Israel. For years in exile, they had been surrounded by idols. And they knew they had two choices, worship God or worship idols. Now, we can say, well, you know, building a temple would kind of make you worship God, right? Right? 
I mean, you're building the temple of God. You're setting up the altar again. You're, you know, making it beautiful again and putting it back in all its glory. And so once you, once you have that magnificent temple reestablished and rebuilt and it's shiny and new, that would cause us to worship God. That's not true. And we're going to see that a little bit in the verse in the, later on in the chapter. It's easy once you do that to start worshiping the temple instead of worshiping God. To worship the image of God, the idea of God, worship the house of God instead of actually worshiping God. We see that in our culture as well. You know, it, it's, it's, we as believers, we can begin to worship the idea of Christianity over actually worshiping Christ himself. It's easy to have our eyes on being influential for Jesus and not have our eyes on Jesus. To have our eyes on the world we live in and what we can accomplish and what we can get and what we can do instead of having our eyes on the, the world that will come one day. You know, it's easy to have our eyes on the ideal government or the ideal politician or the ideal economy or the ideal family or the ideal kids and not have our eyes on God. I'm going to be honest with you, in, our, in, in, in American Christian culture, especially American Baptist culture, it's real easy to deem patriotism or a republic or a, a political party. I said the wrong one. I said the one. I didn't mean it. Republicans. To be, I'm a Republican and I'm a patriot, so I'm a great Christian. It's easy to, to look at it and say, oh, well, since they love America and they love the right political party, then they're wonderful children of God. That's not always the case. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. There are some Republicans that are wicked as the devil, have nothing to do with God, but they say the right things, and so we believe them. There's some Democrats that love Jesus. I know y'all are like, no, there are. There are, some, there are people who live in other countries and love their country more than they love America, and they're wonderful Christians. But we have a tendency to say, well, no, they don't, they don't believe they're right. It's not the ideal thing for me. And so we start worshiping those things. Look, the other day, I'll show you what I mean. The other day, so I'm not, not going to try to get into it, but something happened in the political spectrum that infuriated me. And the first thing I did was get on Facebook and type about why I was so mad about it. And then I thought, I'm a pastor. Most of the people that I pastor are not going to agree with me. Delete. And then I went to a Facebook page I'm a part of just for pastors. And I didn't post what I was mad about. But I, how many of you all have seen that meme of Homer Simpson streaking back into the hedge? You know what I'm talking about? Where Homer Simpson, he just kind of disappears into the hedge. All right, y'all know what I'm talking about. If you see it, you'd see it. But it's, it's kind of like I'm just getting out of the situation. And I said, you know, when you're a pastor and want to post something political, it just kind of disappear. And one guy said, don't let your Christianity take over your, your patriotism. Like, Whoa. He goes, you're, you're still an American. You should still say what you want to say. Don't worry about you being a pastor or being a Christian. Like, no. Your Christianity should trump everything. 
What I believe as a Christian, that's what, what, you know, I didn't post it because what I believe as a Christian matters way more than what I believe as a independent. I'm not a Republican, Democrat, but I'm not any. So, but what I believe politically has nothing to do with what I believe in Christ. That's what matters. But too many of us, we can look and say, oh, well, they don't agree with me politically, so they're not a good Christian. They're not a good believer. They don't, they're, they're wicked and I'm not. And we're worshiping that instead of worshiping Jesus. So what am I saying? Really, don't post what you think about everything. Number one, no one cares, all right? I know, right before I hit post, I thought, no one cares about this. And the people that do care are going to care the wrong way, so I'm not going to post it. Now I'm going to start. Don't post what, what, everything you think because no one cares and no one has ever gotten saved because you like a certain politician. Ever. Look, there are some politicians I love. They're not in politics anymore or they're dead. I don't like many of the new. I don't like much of the, new, the ones that are around here. But you know what? I, I love Ronald Reagan. I've read a lot of his biographies. I know he wasn't the greatest guy in the world, but that's fine. You know, no one has ever gotten saved because of Ronald Reagan. No one has ever gotten saved because I promoted Ronald Reagan. You know how many people have gotten saved because of Jesus? I can't even count them. That's the only thing that's going to save. So it's easy to worship things. It's easy to worship a church over Christ. Even a church building over Christ. I'm getting into some dangerous territory. Y'all are getting mad at me. Let me move on here. Get to my second point, all right? Y'all are, y'all are y'all starting to hate me right now. Uh, it's easy to pray to Jesus for something you want more than you actually pray to Jesus himself. And that's, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity isn't about putting yourself or your wishes or your will first. Christianity is about surrendering your desires, your will, your wishes, your everything to Christ, to God. Worshiping God last, praying and seeking God after you have sought everything else, that's not true worship of God. So we are wired to look for significance in things. We are wired to give all of ourselves to something or someone. Whatever that thing is, we're going to worship. Whether it's God, whether it's ourselves, or whether it's something we think we have to have to be made whole. So the question is, will we worship God or an idol? Will we worship the Creator or part of his creation. That's what the Jews were trying to establish. And so Ezra, Ezra 3, it shows us that by choosing to worship God first and foremost in our lives, we can experience true restoration and true wholeness. That's the entire theme of Ezra and Nehemiah is restoration, is restoring what was broken. And listen, all of us are broken. All of us are broken people in a broken world serving a perfect Savior who has promised to restore it all one day to perfection. And so for us to experience and to really know that restoration and that wholeness, we have to worship God above everything else. It shows us 
how we are to wait for God to bring final restoration to us and to this world, how we are to wait for God to make all things new. So here's how we're supposed to wait. Number one, we should strive for unity. Look at verse number one again of chapter three. In the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in their cities. The people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Look, unity is vital for God's people. You know, the nation of Israel had been divided really all of its history. Even when they come to the prompt, you know, when they, they're brought out of Egypt, they're divided against Moses and, and really God because they want one thing and Moses is telling, taking them to the promised land and they're unhappy, they're discontent. We would rather be slaves in Egypt and sail here and I'll have to eat this manna. And so there were constant division there. Then they, they conquer the promised land and they're, they're good for a while, but then they're, the land's conquered, the land is divided, and they really became these separate tribes as opposed to one nation. And so God allowed the kingdom, the, the kings to come in to try to reunite the nation. And they did. Under David, the whole nation is, is under one king, under one, one ruler, and they're worshiping God together and they're united. But then Solomon, he keeps it stronger. But then after Solomon's death, the, the, the whole nation falls apart again, goes to the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And so they've, they've been divided most of their history. Now... They are coming together as one people. They have one desire, one heart, one goal. They are unified under God. As believers, we should be unified together against our enemy. We, are, we all have the same enemy. The devil is trying to destroy every single one of us. He's trying to, he can't take us to hell, so he's trying to ruin our lives, take away our joy, make us ineffective in giving the gospel to anybody else. We all fight the same enemy, so we should be unified to fight him together. But here's the thing, not just in this building, not just this church, the church, the church of God needs to fight together to, to beat the enemy. We have a tendency to think that our church or our denomination is the only right one. I've done it. We've all done it. Well, they're Presbyterian. They're bad. They're this. They're bad. There are some, look, there are some bad ones, all right? There are some cults. There are some, some false teeth. There are some bad ones, but not all of them. There's some wonderful Methodists out there that believe in salvation by grace through faith and the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. That believe you are saved by putting your faith and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave as payment for your sin. And that's it. That believe we're supposed to preach that to other people. That believe the Bible and follow it. And just because they don't have the right name on the sign doesn't mean they're my enemy. Doesn't mean that I should oppose them or fight against them. I don't care what name is on a church sign. If they believe the gospel, if they believe that God looked down from heaven and saw our sin and saw that we were hopeless and helpless and we could never do anything to 
pay for our sin debt, but he loved us so much that he took on flesh and lived a perfectly sinless life. And he died on the cross to pay for my sins and to pay for your sins and rose again to redeem me to God the Father. And by putting my faith in that and that only for salvation, that's the only way to be reconciled with God. If they believe that and preach that, I'm for them. I don't care who they are. I don't care what their church sign is. I don't care how they worship. I don't care what they wear when they worship. Well, no, I do. They need to wear something. But I don't care. I don't care how they do church. They may not have a church. They may, they, well, they only meet on Thursday afternoons in somebody's home. That can't be right. Who cares? You know what the, you know what the first church was? It wasn't a building. It was every day, house to house. It was house. Look, I'm glad we don't do that now. Why? Because the same guy had to go to different houses every single day. I'd be preaching seven days a week. And so I guess I just have one message seven different times. That's fine. We can do that. We can go that way if y'all want to. But that's what, what church was. Just a bunch of leaders going to everybody's houses, preaching, preaching to them, teaching to them. That was church. But now we're like, no, this is church. And if it's not done this way, it's wrong. No. If they're preaching the gospel, they're on my team. And I'm for them. They are part of God's family. Jesus said that the way the world would know that we were his was how we loved each other. He wasn't talking to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. He was talking to every child of God. No matter where they live, no matter where they worship, he says, if you're my child, if you've accepted me as your savior and you preach the gospel, you're in the family of God and people know you're part of God's family because you love everybody in the family. Look, we've all got members in our family that we love because we got to love them, right? You go to the family reunion and there's that, there's that weird uncle. You say, I don't got a weird uncle. You're the weird uncle. We may not want to hang around them, but we love them. We're for them. We'll support them. That's what church, the church of God is like. And we may not want, we may not want to worship with that other group down the, down the street because they worship a little different. It's a little uncomfortable for us, but you know what? I'm for them. They're preaching the gospel. They're God's family. They're trying to get people saved. And they're going to get people saved that I never will. So you know what? I'm for him. We are unified together. The church, those saved by the blood of Jesus Christ are all part of one body and we are to work together to spread the gospel. Our battle's not against each other. Our battle's not against other churches. It's against Satan and his kingdom. So whenever we go out you know, knocking doors or we haven't knocked many doors in a year, but we've passed out stuff. And we, even when we're hanging door hangers, people see us and they come out and they talk to us. Whenever I'm talking to someone and they tell me what church they go to, if I know that's a gospel preaching church, I never say, well, you should come visit us. Why? Because they're in a gospel preaching church. I'm not, I don't want that guy's members. I don't want their members. You know who I want? I want the lost that haven't found any church. Because I'm for everyone preaching the gospel. We need to look into our hearts and see what division we have towards other believers. But look, also in our church. 
No divisions in our church. There may be people here that you've got a problem with someone and you've had it for years and never dealt with it. It's time to deal with it. It's time to say, you know what? You're, you're, you're a child of God and you're in my family of God and you're part of my... I'm going to love you and support you and take care and do whatever I can for you and pray for you and, and do good to you and love you like God has commanded us to. While we wait for God to bring restoration to this world, we need to strive for unity in the body of Christ. But more than that, we also need to, number two, we need to walk in obedience. Look at verse number two. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, and his brethren of the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, and his brother, brethren, and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written, the law of Moses, the man of God. <clears throat> And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offering uh, thereupon to the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the feast of the tabernacles, as it is written. They offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom of the, as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and all of the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. And of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering, to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. So one of the first things they do after returning to Jerusalem is they reinstitute these offerings and sacrifices to God. And they were careful to make sure they were doing everything exactly as the word of God had commanded them, how the law commanded them, making sure they were getting every sacrifice. That's why from the first day of the seventh month, for several months, these sacrifices kept going because during this time, feasts just came one, one day after the other. And so they were constantly offering sacrifices. But they didn't say, you know what, we, we've offered enough sacrifice. Let's, let's skip ahead and do something else or let's forget it. No, they were careful to obey the word of God. They obeyed the law of God exactly. And that's important to obey the word of God. Can we all agree with that? It's important to obey God's word. But more important than obedience is your heart behind the obedience. Your motive behind the obedience. If you're obeying the word of God just so people think you're a great Christian, your heart's wrong. Doesn't matter what you do. You're, you're not right with God. If you're doing it because you want to check off these boxes because I got to do all this to make God happy with me, that's not how God works. And so your motives are wrong. Your heart is wrong. And remember, God looks at the heart. The Bible said that they did this because fear was upon all of them. Now, it wasn't fear of God destroying them. The word fear means in all of God. They had a reverence for God and a respect for God that they said, we need to make sure that we are doing everything to honor God and glorify God and praise God because he deserves it. How we worship is not as important as the heart behind our worship. And they were obeying God in heart and in action. They were returning to a destroyed temple after spending 70 years in exile, and some of them had seen the temple before. They'd seen it in its glory. They saw the result of disobedience to God, of obeying in action and not obeying in heart, and they didn't want to make the same mistake again. 
While we wait for God to make all things new, it's very easy in this world and this culture to be tempted to live in disobedience to God's word, to live for ourselves. You know, Jesus said in Luke 21, he said, and take heed to yourselves. So anytime your hearts be overcharged with superfeeding and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that the, that so, and so that day come upon you unawares. Here's what he's saying. Look, the world's going to get worse and worse. And if you're not careful and you're not guarding your heart, you're going to find yourself living in sin and not even realizing it because your sin is not as bad as their sin. See, as the world gets worse, it's easy for us to justify our sin because it's not as bad. I'm not, I'm not changing my gender, so I'm not nearly as wicked as they are, so what I look on the internet is not that important. That's not what God says. We're not killing babies, so we can have bitterness in our heart towards people that hurt us and disagree with us because at least we're not doing that. See, God doesn't say, be holier than the world. God says, be holy just as I am holy. See, sin doesn't change because the world gets worse and worse. We still need to walk with God. We still need to listen to the Holy Spirit. We still need to obey the commands of God and live holy in a fallen world. And wait in this fallen world for God to return and make things new can be hard to live for God because the world is just getting worse and worse and worse. But just because the world doesn't get worse, gets worse doesn't mean we as God's children follow behind just a few steps closer to God. Well, they went 10 steps that way, so I'll just go two steps. I'm still, I'm still sinning, but not as bad as him. That's not how God, God doesn't say just don't be as bad as the world. God says, be holy like me. No matter what the world does, no matter how wicked the world gets, we're to live for God. God is still holy. God's word is still true. God's commandments are still there. And we are still called to be different and to be a light to the world. So we're to live in obedience. Third thing we should do as we wait for God is we build God's kingdom. <clears throat> Look at the end of verse number six. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they, they built all this. They, they, built, they kind of reestablished the altar. They did the sacrifices, but they haven't done anything for the house of the Lord. Then look at verse number seven. They gave money also unto the masons, and to the carpenters, and to the, and meat and drink and oil unto them uh, of Zidon, and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming into the house of the God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiah, and Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and the remnant of their brethren and priests and, and the Levites and all that they were come out of the captivity into Jerusalem and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with the sons and his brethren 
those guys and his sons and Judah together to set forward the workmen in the house of God and the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Ashpath, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout out when they praise the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So an altar had, had been set up for sacrifices, but the temple was still in ruins. But after they have this time of worship and sacrifice to God, they, 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 decide, they dedicate themselves to rebuilding the house of God. They gave financially they gave of their goods, they gave of their time, they gave of their abilities, they gave completely of themselves to make sure the work of building the house of God got done. So through their sacrifices, the foundation of the house of God was restored. And they had labored, and after they laid the foundation, they sing praises to God and, and worship Him as they worked. As God's children... It is our job to build his kingdom, to sacrifice for his work and for his glory. We're to give of our time, our treasure, and our talents to make sure that his kingdom is being built. That means giving financially to the church and to missions to get the gospel out. That means giving of our time to share the word of God. That means giving of our talents to help in the worship of God. That could mean singing or, or teaching or, or working or serving. We all have that responsibility. Look, none of us as God's children still alive on this earth can say, well, I can't do what others can do or I can't do what I used to do, so I just won't do anything. We can all give. We can all pray. We can all invite others to join us for church. We can all pass out tracts. We can all be a part of building the kingdom of God. People need to hear the gospel. The word of God needs to be preached and God says our labor for him will never be in vain. Charles Spurgeon said it is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. Here's the thing. If you're not busy building God's kingdom, you're going to be busy building your kingdom. And your kingdom is going to fail. No matter what you put in it, it's going to fail. So we work to build God's kingdom. Fourth thing we need to do, we are to fight discontentment. Look at verse number 12. Now remember, verse 11, they've cleared out. Now, when they laid a foundation, like, that's not much work, but they, they had to get rid of all the rubble and all the gar and everything. So they have basically cleared the entire area and they have relayed the foundation for the temple of God. And once it's laid, man, they're singing and they're praising God. But look at verse number 12. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men, in the Hebrew, that means they were old. They'd been there before. Uh, of ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. 
For the people shout with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. So the people are unified. They've cleared out the rubble. They've built, redid the foundation. They are praising God. But there's some people who saw the temple before it was destroyed, who saw it in its glory, that look at what they have now and are weeping because it's not what it used to be. It's not up to their standards. It's not what they remember. God's people, they're unified. They're being obedient. They're building God's house. But there are some people who just weren't content. Some of the elders, some of those who saw the first temple, they were disappointed in the new temple so much that while everyone else is praising God, they're crying. They were restored to their home, but they weren't content with the way things were going. They wanted it to be just like it had been. They wanted it re everything restored as if it had never happened. They were longing for something better. Now look, as believers, we are to long for something. We're to long for the day when God will fix everything that is broken. We are to long for the day when that trumpet will sound and we'll be up in heaven with God and then he will make the whole world new again and it will be like it was supposed to be from the beginning and we'll be in sweet fellowship with God for all of eternity. It is, but it is easy to get discontent with what we have here because we're looking for what should come one day. We long for our true home and that's, that's okay as long as our longing for home doesn't distract us from what we're doing here. As long as the work we're doing here doesn't make us say, well, it's not like it should have been. It wasn't like it used to be, and it's not like it's gonna be, so I'm not happy with it at all. We can become discontent with the situations we have to face. We can become discontent with the trials that we go through with the losses that we suffer. Look, God allows pain in our lives to drive us closer to him. He allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. He allowed the temple to be destroyed to bring Israel back to a place of worship with him. We will all, one, we will all stand among ruins sometime in our life. Don't allow the pain of what we think we've lost make us weep and miss what God is doing right now. Allow, us to, allow it to drive us to God as we praise him for what he is doing and praise him for what we will be one day. You know, as we long for restoration, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. He left heaven to come and to redeem us to God the Father. And one day we'll be reunited with him in a home that he has prepared for us. As Jesus said, let us not grow weary in well-doing. You know what that means? Don't grow tired and angry and discontent while we wait. Let's strive for unity. Let's walk in obedience to his word. Let's, be, let's build his kingdom and let's be content with his plan.